We love sharing tips about our favorite running gear with our podcast listeners. One of our favorite running items for as long as we've both been running are our spy belts. Our spy belts, small personal instrument belts, are perfect for carrying anything small with you on your run. That could be your nutrition, your phone, your keys. The best part is that they don't chafe and they don't bounce around. So you don't have to worry while you're on your run. Check out Spy Belt at spyspibelt.com. We always talk about the importance of recovery after our training runs. One of the products that we love to use to help with our recovery are our Lily Trotters compression socks. What do compression socks do? Compression socks can help reduce swelling, improve circulation, and reduce muscle soreness in your feet and legs. So we put them on after our long runs, after our hard workouts, or just when we're feeling like we need that little extra bit of recovery. Check out the stylish line Lily Trotters at www.lilytrotters, that's L-I-L-Y-T-R-O-T-T-E-R-S dot com. And you can use the code RFF20 for a discount. Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. So in perfect fashion, just as we started recording, guess who just rang the bell to go outside? (laughs) I don't think it's Darren. No, it's Cooper. Cooper. Cooper the Wonder Dog. That's so funny. (laughs) So because we should say that we've been chatting for quite some time already before we actually hit record. And we hit record. And that is Cooper's signal to ring the bell to go out. Yes. So anyway, I'm just standing by the door while talking to you, waiting for him to come back in. So anyway, how are you? What's going on? <laughs> I, I'm doing great. Um, you know, we're uh, in September already. We're, uh, we're just about a month away from Boston. So there's been a lot of, um, a lot of movement on the Boston front this week. Uh, the numbers were released. And um, there's, so first of all, the app. The current year's app was released, and in that app, once uh, runners log in, you can get your bib number. And uh, once you get into Athletes Village and go under My Events and click on the 125th Boston Marathon, you can actually get your bus loading time, which has been a big question for a lot of uh, folks of how how it's going to work this year. And so this has given us a little bit of insight into um, into how it's going to work. I know in my app, my starting time says 9 a.m. My bus loading time, it says at Boston Commons, is 8 a.m. I don't think that's probably exactly right because we know the bus trip usually takes about an hour. Um, but I know your bus loading time says says what time did your bus time loading time say 9 a.m my bus loading time said 9 a.m and my race start time said 9 a.m so i think the 9 a.m race start is obviously uh when the actual race starts for everyone yeah yeah although i think i saw something that elite um elite start times were listed as like 8 37 or something so yeah i think nine sounds like it might be the formal start of the race with the elite starting uh you know 20 or 23 minutes earlier but we'll i guess we'll find out more in the coming days but things are Things are really rolling and um, getting close to race day and getting close to taper time. Yeah, that reminds me, we we need to set up a date for all of our runners, our Boston marathoners to, um, we'll do like a pre-race meeting uh, Zoom. We need to do that. I'm just thinking out loud. Um, so yeah, we'll do that. But of course we have, we'll also do a pre-race episode as we do before every Boston marathon where um, we will provide last minute tips and what everyone can be doing to not only optimize their race experience, but also all the things before the race to make it just a very special and um, less stressful Boston marathon. So look out for that episode. Uh, We'll probably do that in about two weeks. So yeah. So in addition to providing uh, the app and allowing us to view our bus time and and there also was development today that the course, of course, will have Morton gels on it. And the Boston Marathon offered a discount, 26.2% discount to order a box of Morton. So now is a great time to do that because we are about a month out from Boston. So never try anything new on race day. We don't want to be on the course and grab a Morton and have that upset our stomachs. So uh, take advantage of that offer and, and maybe share a box with someone else. If you don't want an entire box, but this would be a great time to order the caffeinated or non-caffeinated Morton gels to try those out before race day. Yeah. Especially because everyone 
should have at least one longer long run left. Um, so that's a good opportunity to practice that. Or if you're doing a tempo run, or you're going to be running more at your race pace or harder efforts. It's important to try it out then too, because as we all know, something you may be able to tolerate and digest at an easy pace or easy effort isn't always as tolerable or digestible at race pace. Yes. And so speaking of food, there's another issue. And I know everyone's comfort levels are different with respect to the Delta variant. So we're not here to be preachy or anything like that, but just stating the facts. And that is that generally speaking, restaurants, Boston Marathon weekend are crowded spaces. It's, it's for those who've been to Boston on Marathon weekend, the, the spaces already are small because it's a big city, but also they're crowded because there are lots of people in town. So in kind of thinking about plans for pre-race dinner, it may not be the best idea to go into a very crowded restaurant um, to eat. And it's just something to consider. And we're not trying to be preachy. Everyone has their own comfort levels. We recognize that most, if not all going to Boston are vaccinated, but this Delta variant is, is wonky and it's, it is highly contagious. And as a result, it may be a good idea to kind of think about a plan B. So Lisa, you and I were talking offline about what we plan to do for dinner. So what are we doing for dinner, Lisa? We are going to pick up some, hopefully some sushi and, uh, and bring it back to our hotel or bring it to, you know, find a place outside to eat like a common area. Um, that's got some picnic tables or a bench that we can sit on and hopefully the weather will be nice. And um, that's what we're going to do, which is a disappointment because, you know, for us, both of us, the Boston experience is so much about the things that we do around the race and that we do with our friends and runners from MCRC. So doing a group dinner or hanging out in Athletes Village or after the race, hanging out at Fire and Ice. And those are all such, um, you know, like when we talk about our Boston Marathon experiences, we don't often talk about the race or our finish times that we talk about those times. And so that's really hard to to accept that this year just might not be the right year for that. And um, again, like you said, everyone has different comfort levels, but I think that, uh, you know, my comfort level is, is getting to Boston safely, getting the race done as safely as possible and getting back home safely. Unfortunately, yeah. this year. hopefully in April, we'll be able to be back to normal, normal operating procedures. But uh, this time I think is just different, different year calls for different measures. Absolutely. And, and I should also mention there are very few restaurants, at least in Little Italy, that have spacious areas for outdoor dining. So that's outdoor dining is easiest. So yeah, when thinking about pre-race dinner, consider if you want to eat with a group, consider finding a venue that may be a little off the beaten path that has some outdoor seating if you're not comfortable eating inside. Yeah, and a lot of the um, restaurants on yeah. Newbury Street and Boylston Street, like on those main streets in downtown Boston do have outdoor dining. And my guess is that during COVID, they've expanded those, those spaces as much as they can with a limited space. So there may be options, but like you said, dining in Boston marathon weekend is challenging to begin with and crowded to begin with that. I can't really imagine it being very easy to reserve or to get that outdoor space. So as a backup plan, I think people should think about, um, you know, alter what, what they're, what they feel comfortable doing and what that, what those alternatives are. And, and to that end, just our own race prep that we've done every year for our runners and sort of everything we've known to be about Boston is really going to have to change this year too. So, um, you know, we're, while we're, while we like to consider ourselves Boston experts this year, nobody's a Boston expert because we've never had a year like this. So we're going to have to, as coaches ourselves, find out what's going on and figure out what that then means. Like we were just talking earlier that, you know, we often tell our runners bring something on the bus to eat for breakfast because of the timing of the race. But A, the timing of the race is different this year. You're not going to get to Athletes Village and be sitting there for two hours. Um, and B, uh, people may not feel comfortable or may not even be allowed. Uh, we don't know yet uh, to take their masks off to eat on the bus. Yeah, good point. So then it's a question of how much time can we have between getting off the bus and starting the race? And now we interviewed Dave uh, McGilvery a couple months ago, and he mentioned that we'd have time to warm up, time to go to the bathroom, time to have some sips of water, but it's not going to be as leisurely, of course, as, as going to Hopkinton. So while certainly um, we can eat something when we get off the bus, it's not going to be a few hours. So it's more just topping off the stores versus having a meaningful breakfast. So I think we all need to consider sort of planning for eating breakfast on the way to the bus, like a walking breakfast on the way to the bus, or of course at the hotel. I think I'll probably do something where I'll have like my first breakfast right before we leave the hotel. Um, 
And then my second breakfast, because it's a pretty long walk to the commons from where we're staying, I think, uh, meander to the commons, hang out in the commons until I board my bus. So maybe Lisa, I'm just talking out loud. I'm rambling. I will walk with you when you get on the bus. And I think I'll hang out in the commons if it's nice and eat my second breakfast. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. I think, you know, it depends again on start times, but if the start time truly is nine, then we want to finish eating breakfast around seven, then that's even before the bus loading time. So my hope would be to be able to eat it uh, either in the hotel or like you said, in the commons before I get on the bus. And then um, what I'm imagining, and this is just, you know, kind of my own, what I'm imagining in my own head is that we will, you know, load the buses, get off the buses, have the time to go to the porta potties, get ready, and then go, go, just get to the start line and go. Like, eat, whether it's a formal start or it's a rolling start or whatever, um, or maybe they're going to have different start times. Like, the people who load the buses at eight are going to start at nine, and the people who load the buses at nine are going to start at 10 or whatever it might be. But whatever time you have once you get there will be very pretty quick to get, you know, line for the porta potties and too close to a start time. Like, you're going to get there if you get there at 8 40 and your start time is nine. Um, that's not when you're going to want to be eating another breakfast. So I think anything you eat is going to have to be uh, beforehand um, and kind of figure that out accordingly. But that, that's what I picture in my head is that we're going to roll up to the start in the buses. It'll be, you know, a certain amount of time before we get started. We'll use porta potties and, you know, it's going to be a rolling start anyway. So if you don't, it, it may just be you start when you get to the start line. I don't know. It's going to be so weird. I'm yeah. actually curiously excited because every we've talked about this before every Boston has something special to it or something unusual so special yeah. in quotes <laughs> special like the heat the rain yeah. yeah I I'm going to put this out there into the universe that I think our weather is going to be nice because we already have too much to contend with okay like we cannot I really do hope you're right <laughs> I hope you're right no dramatic weather, please. So yeah, so we will talk more about this in a very detailed upcoming episode where we talk about race prep, but those are our rambling thoughts. So and we should Boston, add to, well, maybe you're going here, but speaking of Boston, we will have a meetup in Boston. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yes, for our runners that are training with us, but also for anyone who listens to the podcast, you'll be in Boston, um, even if you're just visiting Boston as a spectator. Um, and we just talked about this before we started this podcast. And uh, in the past, we've met in a hotel lobby and had some a chance to mingle and mix. But again, because of COVID, we want to keep it outdoors. So pending the weather and hoping again that your prediction is right. And that you're, you know, you've thrown that out in the universe and that comes true into fruition. Uh, we are going to meet in the Boston Commons at Brewer Fountain, which is on the Park Street station side of the park. And we will um, post a link to the actual like garment, uh, like a GPS link to the to the fountain. It's pretty easy to find. It's a pretty notable landmark. Um, and we are going to meet there on Sunday. Um, I don't know if we've decided on a time yet. Can we just I, think, on a time? <laughs> I think we decided on um 9 a.m is that isn't that what we decided that sounds, we that sounds that sounds that sounds about right to me so we'll we'll firm up the details and we'll post them on uh you know on our runner calendars but also on social media um and make sure everybody knows but um you know 9 a.m to meet outside do a short shakeout run together um get to say hello take some pictures um and uh and 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 you know see folks that'll be that that is our that is our plan as of now yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see everyone. There's so many runners who are going to be there that we've known for years virtually that we've never met in person. And I'm, I'm super excited to meet them in person. So yeah. that's probably going to be the highlight of our weekend. Yes, it always is. Yeah, for sure. So um, before Boston, uh, we've had a lot going on over the last week. First of all, we were so uh, just tumbled by the number of responses we received um, via email, text, um, Facebook message, Instagram message with respect to our 100th episode. We still can't believe that people listen to us babble. We didn't have a guest last week. It was just us talking. And we received so many wonderful emails and um, communications about the episode and about the podcast. And we just want to extend a heartfelt thank you to all of you for sticking with us because we read every single one. and, and it, just means the world to us that we um, carry you with us because we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. It's always nice to hear too from uh, you know past runners who listen to the podcast or people we've known for many years or newer people that you know we haven't communicated with before. It's always nice to to hear from them. So, um, like I said, I think on our on our podcast last week, the night, one of the nicest things about um, this podcast has been the opportunity to get to uh, reach out to and, and expand our network of run farther and faster friends and, and, and 
people who, you know, who are, we consider as part of our run faster, run farther and faster family. So um, that's always nice to hear from folks. For sure. So I feel like I need to extend a hearty congratulations to you, Lisa. Races are back and you uh, ran the Interfaith 5K on Labor Day. Not only did you run the race, you crossed the finish line as first female, broke the tape with your daughter, Kira, carrying the band, the tape, which is a beautiful picture we posted on Facebook and you were on the race committee and the race was very successful. So it kind of felt like it was just like the, the, the like my family's show or like my family and my friends, like Paul was on the race committee. My, my um, daughter and son were the bike leads. Kira helped volunteer and she was holding. The, so I just felt like it was kind of like, yeah, it was just a race put on for me to, you know, be able to cross the finish. <laughs> we were just in charge of everything there. You know, it wasn't really a real race. It was just one we put on by ourselves, but, but, uh, but it was fun. It's, it's actually, it was really nice. This is a race that, um, a small race, so I will say that, but it's a, a small, really nice race that was started uh, over five years ago now um, by our synagogue here in Gaithersburg after um, there was an incident where the synagogue was defaced and the local community um, came together, all of the different um, congregations and spiritual communities came together to support the synagogue and say, like, we're stand up for against hate. And, um, and as a kind of what had come out of that was a decision to let's do it, let's do a 5k and let's, you know, bring people together to run. And so we have um, a couple of church churches, a, a mosque and a synagogue that co-sponsor the race. And um, it's really, I'm, I'm really proud of what it's grown to be over the years. It's, uh, you know, started out as a small race that we weren't quite sure um, if it was even going to take off or happen again. And it's grown every year. And I will say I was, um, I was looped onto the committee this year. I was convinced to be on the committee by Paul. And I was really glad that I, and I usually get mad at myself for getting suckered into being on committees and, and making more commitments, but this was actually such a pleasure. Um, the committee itself, uh, Pastor Christine, who's been on our, on our, um, on our podcast before, along with Rabbi Lori Rice, uh, she is kind of the head of the, the race committee and her energy and her positivity and her um, the leadership of this committee has been uh, really, it was such a pleasure to be a part of and everybody on the committee, just hard workers, really dedicated to the mission. And um, so really it's just such a nice event. And um, when you're there on the day of the race, just to see all of the different um, congregations, faiths come together to, to do this race, it, it was a really nice experience. So, um, and I have looped my whole family into, <laughs> into volunteering. They don't really have a choice, um, but you also ran a race this week and you actually had a had a um, wonderful, uh, first of all, happy birthday. Your birthday was yesterday and you had a little bit of a, hopefully a birthday celebration over the weekend and you got to run a race as well with one of our, oh, and I will say we had a couple of our Run Farther and Faster runners run the race and it was really nice to see them and meet, speaking of meeting in person, Valerie Duncan is one of our runners who lives locally, but we hadn't met and I got to meet her and spend time with her and her husband, which was lovely. And you also got to run with one of our runners, even though you weren't local, you were at the beach. Um, so tell us about your race. Okay, but before we get on to my race, I have a couple of questions for you about your race. So you, this was like one of your first 5Ks back, and you had talked a lot on the podcast about how your runs this summer have been, for you, a very slow pace. And did you, were you able to find your gear? And can you reassure those who have felt the same way that the gear still exists, even if we're running easier on our easy days because of the heat and humidity? Yes. Yeah. They, they are there. I will say I have not, I have not in probably a year and a half. I can't remember how long it's been run anything even close to let's say a seven thirty mile. Like maybe, I don't think I can't really remember many that are under eight minute miles. And I was able to pull out at least my first mile and the 5k was a sub seven mile. So it's there. It's not, um, I will not say it's easy and I will not say I'm actually where I was a year and a half or two years ago compared to, you know, a couple of years ago, I'm definitely I wasn't quite there. And I think I will tell you, I think I attribute that to a couple of things. First of all, I'm two years older. So I do think that as we get older, um, you know, I, you don't have to get slower, but I think there's a you know, reality, especially we see with women after age 45, as we get closer to 50, there's a little bit of a drop off sometimes. So I attribute part of that, partly that. Um, and then the other thing is that I haven't been racing. So that's always been my speed work. 
Um, so I haven't had any speed work in a couple of years really consistently. Um, so at all. So that was always, you know, I would always do regular races and that just is what I considered my speed work. And I haven't had that. So I think as I get back into racing, um, and, and get my legs turning over faster, that that'll feel a little bit better, but, uh, it was definitely a challenge and it's, it's, you know, psychologically, I think a challenge to kind of rip that bandaid off and get back out on the race course and maybe not be where you were exactly a couple of years ago. Um, but that's okay. It's like I said, I feel like it's a lot of different factors and, um, and it's a process to get back into racing. So, um, it was nice to get out. It was a little bit nerve wracking to, it was felt weird to be back out at a race, but, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to more races. And I, like I said, I feel like I'm um, having those races back in my schedule will help me get some of my speed back in my legs that I'm not motivated, unfortunately myself to do, I haven't been motivated in the last year and a half to do on my own, but yes, I, it's still there. Oh, it's definitely there. And I, I actually disagree. I don't think you're getting slower at all, Lisa. I think this is just exactly what you said. This is the first time you've run anything under a seven in, in many, many, many months. And so that, that to me is what this is about is getting your sea legs back. I, I do not believe that, that you are slowing down. Um, but yeah, I think that's, it's, it's very hard and everyone's going through this because all of the races were canceled and now they're all coming back. So everybody's coming to the start line right now with sort of a, where, where am I right now in this, you know, how am I going to do, I haven't done this in so long. Even if, even if you've done a lot of speed work during COVID, you still haven't towed a start line in a while, most people. So just ripping off that bandaid, as you mentioned, and getting out there is really important and trying really hard not to focus on what did I do the last time I ran this? Because a lot has happened since the last time we've all run a particular race that we're running again. So yeah, I think I just wanted to touch on that. Yeah. So yeah, with, with respect to me, I was, um, I went to Rehoboth this weekend, um, to celebrate Rosh Hashanah because, um, uh, the services at our synagogue went virtual again, and just being at home was sort of depressing for us. So we went to the beach and celebrated with another family there. And I happened to find a race, um, on Sunday. And I ran that with, um, Deb Levy, who's one of our clients and she is often in the Dewey beach area and runs a lot of the races there. So, uh, she ran it with her daughter. They ran at an easier pace because it was just part of their easy run that day. And I decided to try out my speed like you, Lisa, and, and run what was the second 5k of my summer. The first one coincidentally was also at the beach. There's just a lot more races in Delaware right now than in our area. And, and they're so well done and it's, it's fun. And frankly, it's flat. So it's really nice to be able to run a flat race. So, um, it was hot and I struggled a little bit at the start because there was a gentleman pushing a stroller. And, um, I really, it, it bothers me when people use the stroller. I think it's awesome when parents race in a stroller with their kids. I think it's a great example for the little ones. It's so fun. And often in races, there are stroller categories, but dude, be mindful and don't use your stroller as a way to block other runners because you can't race the same way in a stroller. Like you have to you have to understand that the stroller is, you know, an impediment for runners. So he was doing what he would normally do in a race, like tangents and things like that at the beginning. And I had to sort of skirt around him and, and we happened to sort of be running the same pace. And it, it got me a little nervous, like I was going to trip and I figured out a way around it. But I thought in my head, I'm going to talk about this on the podcast because what a great example for your kids to actually tell them as you're, you're running, Hey, we're going to, we're going to slow down here and let some of these other runners go a little bit. And then we'll speed up again. Cause we don't, we want to make sure that we don't hurt anyone. <laughs> like, I think that's a much better example than, Hey, dad's going to try and get a PR in this stroller. So With the stroller. if you're going to get a PR, leave the stroller at home. But I will yeah. say I've been in some races where those stroller runners are way faster than I am. So if they're not in my way, then I guess I don't have a problem with it. But, um, but yes, I think you're right. If you're running at that pace and you're running that fast and, um, and obviously then somebody who's probably cognizant of, of, of race etiquette. So. Yeah. I have run a few races, where, like, especially the Kentlands 5k, there's one man every year who runs at a stroller. Do you know, do you know what I'm talking about? He is so exactly. fast. It's amazing. Yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, we, we should have yeah, him on yeah. the podcast to talk about his stroller running secrets. But yeah, yeah the race I ran, Mike Wardian, um, who was a guest on our podcast, he won the whole shebang. And oh. so he, when I finished, I finished and um, he was in front of me by like 
you know, probably five minutes. I think he ran like a 16 something or whatever. And he looped around and so to work, to cool down. And I did, I was still finishing. And so I passed him and I was, you know, finishing. so I was running as fast as I could, but I, I managed to say, Hey, Mike Wardian. I said, Julie, run farther and faster. And he said, <laughs> he's like, yeah, keep running farther and faster, Julie. Good job. <laughs> <You're> like, <"No." laughs> <laughs> that's really funny but yeah that happened I don't think he realized that I was so well, this like, is a good segue this is a good segue well first of all congratulations because you did very well you in your too. race and you too um uh that is a good segue though talking about local runners local admiral local runners um there was an article in the Washingtonian magazine so, several years ago where there was a local runners you need to know and Michael Wardian was one of those but one of the other other runners mentioned was Matt Rodgem, who is a local runner. And we actually, we actually met Matt through Paul, who works with him and is friends with him and has said, you really need to interview this guy. He's a really great runner and has a really um, intriguing and compelling story. And uh, we reached out to him and he was very generous of his time and his, his willingness to share his story. And we have him on the podcast this week. And um, he is, uh, Matt is uh, a local runner who uh, lost his vision in 2000 when he was just 20 years old to Lieber's hereditary optic neuropathy, which is a gradual loss of, um, of, 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 of part of his vision. Um, so really has rendered him legally, uh, visually impaired. And um, he was a talented runner before that, running, um, uh, you know, in high school and college, uh, cross country. And, uh, you know, he talks to us about how he adapted to that and how he has um, kept on with his running and not only kept on, but very successfully with his running. He uh, ran Boston in 20, 2009 and 2010. And in 2010, he was actually the second place visually impaired runner um, with a 306 finish time. And he was chasing sub three and, and successfully did that with the help of a pacer um, that, that we all uh, will have heard of. And he'll talk about who that is at the California International Marathon CIM in 2016, where he hit 259. Um, so he has succeeded doing that. And he is um, really just such a inspirational runner and a lot of really um, great words of wisdom. So uh, I I was excited to have him on the podcast and, and get to talk to him and get to know him. He was really, really inspiring. And, and it's very timely because the Paralympics just finished up and, uh, you know, the networks don't really uh, have Paralympics on nearly as much as the Olympics. And what those athletes go through is, is tremendously hard and so admirable. So to have an athlete talk about his experience on a micro level and, and what he's had to overcome and how he's able to uh, train. It was, it was really interesting and, and super inspiring. So uh, thank yeah, you to Paul awesome. for putting that together and, yeah. and introducing us to him. Yeah, it was really neat to me to hear. I got a, you know, finished our interview with him, uh, really inspired to, to, to be a guide. Uh, you know, we, we see them a lot on the courses. If anyone's been out on courses and you see somebody who has a bat on the bat on their back, a, you know, a, a kind of a sign that says guide and either usually with a runner they may be tethered to them they may be just helping them and you kind of always wonder like what does it take to be a guide or how do you do that or how does that whole relationship work and to me that was really interesting um, to hear about how that how that happens and also sounds like such a rewarding way to to give back to the running community yeah for sure all right so we'll hand it over to matt so lisa i hope you have a great week thanks you too julie happy Bye. new year Happy New Year. We wanted to take a quick break from the podcast to thank our friends at RNJ Sports for their support. RNJ is our go-to expert on all things running gear related, particularly running shoes. If you've struggled with finding the right shoes, the staff at RNJ can help solve just about any problem or issue. As a small locally owned business, RNJ is heavily involved in and supportive of the local running community. They get runners. They are runners. RNJ has been an enthusiastic supporter of our podcast and our training programs, including our Montgomery County Public Schools program. We are so appreciative of their support. Check them out online at rnj, that's rnjsports.com. Matt Rajam, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for hosting me. It's uh, my honor. Well, we are we are we are excited to hear that this is the first podcast that you're on. You kind of like jokingly told 
told us before we got started, longtime listener, first time caller. So we're honored to have you on and we're uh, grateful to Paul for introducing you to us and connecting you to us. And uh, like I said, we're surprised you haven't been on a podcast before because you've got an amazing, amazingly compelling story. And um, being a Boston Marathon podcast, you do have some, you know, you've run the Boston Marathon, that's just very small part of your story though. So we're excited to, to have you on and just thought we'd start kind of with your background and um, you know where you grew up, how you started running and how you kind of came to love running. Yeah, sure. I originally grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania <clears throat> and got introduced to running actually as like many people started, I started as a soccer player and used it as training and found out I was better at running than soccer. <laughs> And uh, joined the cross-country team and track team in high school and continued all the way to college, um, all the way to probably the point of my vision loss. Um, I live in Fairfax, Virginia now. I've got a family. I'm 41. Um, I've got a wife, Sarah, and three kids, and they keep me busy. And your three kids are similar to mine. You've got twins and a younger, what we call singleton, right? So you've got three very close in age as well. Yeah, I've got... Uh, twin daughters, Emily and Marissa, who are uh, in the fifth grade, and uh, son Zach, who's in third grade. So it's it's a fun age. Uh, it's almost having triplets because one's almost about the same size as the other. So it's never a dull moment in this house. I would always joke it was economies of scale. If you're doing it for one, you might as well be doing it for three, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so you mentioned, you know, you ran up into your vis until your vision loss. So um, kind of walk us through that, what, what happened and how old you were and sort of the progression of your condition and what your condition is. Yeah, sure. Let's, I guess, start. Um, so I have a disease called Leber's hereditary optical neuropathy. That's a mouth force. So we usually just go by LHON or Leber's for short. What it is, is basically it, in young adults, it deteriorates the optic nerve. Um, so messages don't get to my brain. Um, it leaves someone with uh, basically similar, easiest way I try to describe it is like macro degeneration. So the center of my vision is totally gone. Um, and I have my peripheral so I can still maneuver, but it basically, uh, it leaves a spot and the best way to describe it is, you know, the old TVs that they have static. That's what I see where there should be information. Um, so I still have my peripheral vision and they use it. They don't use the eye chart on me. So I have, they use how many fingers I can do at a distance. So they'll pull, go two feet from my face, how many fingers, five feet, and then move it around. Um, it hits young adults, so I was 19. Um, I was actually going up the cross-country season and stuff and noticed I couldn't read the license plate uh, when driving up normal college students. And by fall break, I closed one eye and couldn't see anything in the middle of it and decided to get a doctor's appointment and uh, thinking it was just need glasses and stuff. And the ophthalmologist sent me straight to the hospital <laughs> that time. and. Um, and after about, I think by January that time frame, my left eye went, leaving me legally blind. And many testing, it was a journey. They couldn't figure out what it was or what it was. And after many doctors seeing three neuro-ophthalmologists up in Pittsburgh, we finally one did a random blood test and it came up positive for this uh, genetic disease, which is usually triggered by some event like heavy smoking, drinking, or physical activity, and neither I was doing. So it just kind of randomly happened. Uh, it leaves me, I can't drive now. Uh, I can't see people's faces when you're walking down the office. If we're at the neighborhood, I can't see the house across the street. But at the time I was able to still continue running on the track team. I made a deal with the track coach that I would always run with somebody. Uh, I didn't always follow that rule. I, after some discussions, I, I was actually told I couldn't run on the cross country team safety. I actually got hurt when running and that kind of triggered the school. How do we say people, the inclusion of people with disabilities have changed a lot over the last 20 years, because this was 2000. And the school's willingness to have people, person with a disability, participate in athletics wasn't as open as 
things are right now. I will be flat honest with you on that. And, but I still continued on track and still continued the run. And it was part of the, as I've gone through this journey of recognizing I'm blind at the time, I didn't even want to recognize it. Um, it helped me keep my mental focus, get through college. And when I moved down here in DC, started running with DC Roadrunners and stuff. So, and that's how I kind of, I've always been a runner and I moved into the marathoning then. So if we could back up for a minute, um, you talk about how you were in college when this happened. Yeah. What did you do? Um, we focus a lot in our podcast about mental health. So yeah. what tools did you use to, at a very young age, learn to accept what was happening? And also, how did you have the strength to know that it was imperative that you keep your identity as a runner at such a young age? I, good questions. Yeah, I won't lie. It wasn't easy <laughs> at all uh, going through this transition, um, trying to figure out changing majors, trying to figure out what my life would be like, if how much blind I was going to become. Uh, probably the things that kept me sane. I had really good family network that supported me no matter what, whatever I needed. If it was equipment, if it was someone to talk to. I had some good friends between the runners and my fraternity brothers and others. My religion also helped me uh, many nights just trying to sort things out. And don't get me wrong, that first year, uh, I will say I was a mess <laughs> a little bit. But um, And uh, the running, it also, I, even though I might have been not running on the cross-country team, I was still out there by myself or going out on trails just to kind of keep that mental focus. It, it, there's so much, college is stressful to begin with. And the running, I knew at the time, my, my grades were better when I was running. So when everything else was going, I was still out there going running four or five miles if I on well-known areas but that I wouldn't get in trouble by myself just during this vision loss process to help just the mental coping of all the stresses going on in my life. So, which, yeah. Yeah. Well, go ahead. I was going to ask talk a little bit about your support network um, at the time, what you remember that people did to help you through this journey. And on a negative note, what were some things that people, uh, how did people disappoint you? So for those listening that may have a friend going through something where they're going through a transformation, um, what can they learn from your experience? Uh, I got lucky. I had two, my, my parents were great through the entire process. Uh, as I mentioned, either coming up randomly the college on a Tuesday evening if I was having a bad day or to pick me up or if it was giving me the new equipment assistive technology equipment it wasn't how, how much it cost or can we do this it was let's just get it done and you're staying in um so yeah I had a great family network I also had some good friends that helped me through it uh occasionally it would break down normally I had a good front like everything's fine but um, the ability, I don't know, sometimes I could hide it, my vision loss, because I can still blend in, even though I can't see people. Um, but I guess the hardest part at the time I've had, uh, through the efforts, probably at the time was the athletic department, not accepting me still wanting to be able to race and try to compete cross country. It, it wasn't on the table. It wasn't a discussion. It was, you can't do this anymore which in today's day and age would be, I believe, a different discussion or, but it was, you're off the team. After some negotiations, I was still allowed to coach, but um, to stay a part of the team, which actually I think helped me mentally. And, but I think in 2000, you know, today's day and age with people with disabilities, it would have been a different discussion. Matt, you mentioned, you know, all of a sudden you didn't have this ability to be on the team and race with the team. Um, and you mentioned earlier that, you know, that's when you kind of at some point decided then to focus on the marathon. How did you kind of shift your goals from, from kind of the cross country and track focus goals in school and being on the team to finding something else to, to strive for and a, a goal to work towards? How did, how did that, how did you do that? Well, I, uh, the marathon, I did one pre-vision loss and I, it was more get to the finish. My second one, I signed up at the end of track season with like two and a half weeks 
And actually, this is how supportive of a father I had. I just called him up and like, hey, you want to sign me up for the Pittsburgh Marathon? Not, hey, you haven't been training for this two and a half. You only have two and a half weeks. He just signed me up because it was online. And I didn't, it's at the time, putting in credit card information and that stuff with the technology. And they went running around all of Pittsburgh trying to find me at every stop. Um, and uh, when I moved to DC, I actually got serious about the marathon. Uh, I started running with DC Roadrunners and my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, uh, encouraged me to run the Marine Corps marathon. She was doing it. So we both decided to do it while training. And, uh, and uh, I think, I can't remember, Sarah, my wife has eight, uh, don't quote me on that, um, marathons, I think all Marine Corps under her belt. And so at the time, I, I decided to move up to the marathon and actually train for it seriously. And had the crazy idea of trying to make Boston. Um, and uh, I'll be honest, I failed that first time. <laughs> so that got me into the itch of marathoning like everybody else. Did you run with Sarah for your first marathon or did she leave you in the dust after running eight before you? <laughs> no, she's done a total of eight. Uh, no, we, uh, we ran our own paces and which met up at the end. Uh, I was supposed to come back and meet her at the first time uh, and uh, which I'm gonna call it and bring her run the last couple of miles with her. But I kind of got IV'd at the finish because it was too hot. <laughs> oh, wow. So what year was that, that you ran your first uh, Marine Corps? I'm trying to think of. I'm trying to think. I think that was 2006 okay. or, se yeah, or seven. It's starting to blur together. I'm getting, um, so. I, I do remember 2000, I think it was, may have been 2005 was super hot could have been 2005 or maybe it was six no, too uh, okay i think six or seven it's starting to blow okay. together a little bit but i think i just amateur not amateur but i overdressed a little bit <laughs> went out too fast <laughs> finished but and you missed you missed qualifying for boston you had an IV at the finish but yeah. nonetheless you um decided to run additional marathons yeah, I decided two years again after and then tried again, um, make the Boston qualifier. Technically, there is there's a blind division in Boston uh, for the visually impaired. And I'm not sure what it is now. I think they've moved it, the standard up, but at the time it was five hours, but at the but still not accepting my vision loss totally. I wanted to still make it under what a normal sighted person would be able to do, even though I wasn't competing as a fully sighted person. I was just trying to get in there and follow people and don't know paces and stuff since they're not talking watches don't give paces unfortunately um just using the next guy or talk to somebody what was your pace there just trying to figure it from there so i in, i think it was 2009 i finally qualified to go up to boston so matt talk a little bit about um kind of the process of running marathons you mentioned a talking watch which sounds like something you know that is maybe um, unique for those with vision loss um, and and what about you know using a guide were you able to run these marathons on your own and um, what kind of adaptations did you need to make and when did you we know eventually you know you ran a few at least a few marathons with the guide when did you make yeah. that transition and what was that like as part of my acceptance journey as I call it is learning to adapt and figure it out at the first uh, I was still trying to run like no, life was normal, not, uh, but uh, some of the, we'll, we'll get to the guide running in a second, but I'll, some of the ad tab things I use is I have a talking watch. It's not too expensive. It's like a 19, $15 talking watch. It'll give me my total splits, not splits, total time, but it doesn't give GPS. It doesn't give you splits. It will just tell you I've been out here for 58 minutes. Um, one of the other things I use is I usually have a decent pair of sunglasses on me. Oh, quick question. What kind of yeah. watch is that? We'll put it in the show notes. I'd have to just look it up. Uh, there's a system technologies, uh, just maxi aid and stuff like that. It just, it's just a general, I usually just look up talking watch on Amazon and there's, uh, they pop up, uh, it's nothing specific or isn't like, you know, uh, Timex. I've actually talked to Timex and, and uh, Garmin to see if they would make a running talking watch, but it just, the market isn't there. But I also usually carry, have a pair of shades on me or always when I'm running, just because if the sun hits me at the wrong area, I actually uh, white out because I have to squint so much. My 
the blind spot becomes more of the vision than my peripheral. So say if we go from two extremes, uh, going from really dark, the really light, I get, uh, it, it hits hard. Um, or, or say you, like running at night, I, I'm lucky I'm at George Mason University, really close. So as long as I can get in there, but if I have a car flash me in the face, I go totally almost not hundred, but like 80% blind uh, for a little bit. And then has, takes a while to recover. But for the longest time, I still tried to continue train run like normal. But after, after my second Boston, I got invited out to California to run the United States Blind Marathon Championships. Um, which is part of the California International Marathon, which is great experience. Uh, I think it was my first or no, it was my second time. Um, my friend Richard Hunter, who runs the uh, basically organizes blind athletes across the nation and invites them out here for this race. And he's like, you're basically just being stupid, Matt. <laughs> Laid it down. Why are you uh, not helping yourself? So he got two guides for that race. Uh, we split it 50, 50 and wow, the, it just took a load of pressure off my shoulder. I wasn't worried about running past turns or when water stops. Cause more, half the water stops, I usually don't get it till I'm halfway through. They were able to tell me paces, things like uh, railroad tracks coming up or, uh, the guys example, you know, sometimes I got the guys on ladders taking photos or just standing in the middle of the road. I've almost run into them half a dozen times. So it, it makes a load of I guess not pressure, but you're not worried about all these other things that you need to be worrying about as a blind runner or a visually impaired runner at the time. Uh, it makes, makes it a team sport. And what was that process of, of getting guides? Like, do you need to kind of like meet in advance and get to know each other? I mean, it would seem like you've got to have some kind of synergy um, to run these races and, and a communication yeah. style and figure out how, how it works. Did you meet in advance? How does that usually work? I'm spoiled, but uh, with um, United States blind athletes, uh, when we go out to this race, we get the first class treatment um, and the race organizer for USABA out in the California, California National Marathon, you just give him your estimated finishing time or pace and he'll figure it out for you. Locally, I've reached out to uh, local running clubs like uh, Georgetown Running Company's elite team that uh, get guides, but there's also a great website called unitedinstride.com. Um, that'd be, if you want to post that, it's a link that it's basically like match.com for guide runners and blind runners. So you go in and put it on a profile saying, Hey, I'm, I, I'm about an eight minute runner. I'm looking to guide or I'm looking to run. And uh, say, if I would go to New York City, I could pop in there and look. And it allows you to communicate with other people that are in the area and see if someone will go for a run with you or if you want to help guide, it allows you to match up. And there's useful videos on how to say, you have no clue how to guide a runner. It, there's useful videos on how to educate on how it works. Right, that was my next question is if somebody wanted to sign up, what, you know, watching totally, those videos, it sounds like, is that, you know, what are, what are your tips for a successful uh, guide? It's totally free to sign up and it's uh, really good videos. But the way I usually work with my guides is the day before a race or we try to go from a few shakeout runs to kind of work out how our logistics work. Um, like a fully blind individual uh, would have a tether and need a lot of oral commands, which is, a, I'm sorry, a tether is a, a small rope, about three foot, that is connected between usually the runner and guide runner at the wrist. I don't prefer the use because I've never actually tried, but normally the way I work with my guide runners and I actually almost hundred percent of races now, not hundred, but probably about nine out of 10 races, I will use a guide runner. So the way we work it is we basically, it basically we form a team. The guide runner will stand, run to my left or right. Uh, we figure after we, I try to communicate, have them communicate things that are coming up. Uh, example, I can't tell if we're turning until we're actually in the turn. So he'll call it out here. We're turning in five, four, three, two, one, turn. Uh, water stops coming up. Uh, Gatorade first, water to that second. He'll ha he can have a, uh, you know, a regular watch. So Matt, you just ran a, a you know, uh, six minute mile there. Or uh, what are the railroad tracks coming up here? Got a high step. 
Uh, one of the things that I do, it's a little unique. Um, I have this thing called shadow. And basically that's our keyword that either of us can call out if we get uncomfortable. And with the limited vision, I get behind the guide and for about two or three minutes, just shadow them. So if I feel uncomfortable, let's say if it's getting crowded in the, the pack or we're going to hit a very narrow spot and the guide runner can tell, hey, it's going to go from a very wide to a very thin area, he can yell shadow. And that's my key to get right behind him and don't break out until uh, probably two, maybe four minutes later um, or until he says you're free. Not free, but um, so those are kind of the things we've used in the past that's worked well for me. Um, what I've, kinds of things can other runners um, do around you that you find would make you uncomfortable? And what can you, what guidance can you give to others who are running around you to make sure that they're not doing things that would frustrate you while you're trying to complete your mm -hmm. run? Um, I guess the first thing is I started identifying myself I, uh, to them so they can know before I, I hate to say it, some of the experiences that when I first lost my vision, I tried to hide it. But now actually I will, I have shirts that say visually impaired runner on it. And when I race, I have uh, a bib that I usually put on me. It says blind runner on it. Uh, and the guide has a guide runner on it. So that identifies it. But I, it, easiest way is just for them to keep their distance a little bit. It makes things a little easier because I can tell where I am, but if someone cuts like anywhere cuts me off, I don't have that reaction time, the react. Um, the hardest part, think example, Boston. Those first six miles of water stops are madness. <laughs> I almost wanted to skip them uh, because it was so hard trying to go through them uh, with all the people, people stopping and, and, I, and putting the vision loss in there. It adds another layer of complication. Yeah, speaking of Boston, let's um, make a, a little bit of a shift and talk about your Boston experiences. You've run in both 2009 and 2010. Um, yes. Talk to us a little bit about your, you know, your memories of Boston, the experience of Boston, um, you know, what that was like for you. Yeah, both Boston's, oh, Boston is like no other race. I've had some fun races, but first of all, just getting there was the unique opportunity. I got to take my wife, my wife and my parents went up. Uh, just getting to that start line uh, and just running the race. And it was so much fun. Uh, there's people yelling the entire time, which uh, there's only a couple of races I've had that experience and getting to the finish. I think I kissed the medal at the, the, uh, <laughs> at the end. And um, it was actually interesting. I didn't know at the time, I actually had pretty good races. I almost finished almost between 30 seconds, both of them the exact same time. But I think a week, you no, know, two weeks beforehand, going up to my first Boston, I actually got a call from the BAA and I'm like, uh, who are you again? He's like, yeah, we were looking at your times and you're probably most likely one of the ranked for the blind runners. So we want you to come to the award ceremony. I'm like, there's an award ceremony. <laughs> so yeah, make sure you come to this afterwards. And, ah. Uh, that year, I actually finished third of out of all the blind runners, but it was, I have to say, pretty neat being up there with all the top meb. Uh, I think my I got to get my picture with Kara Goucher at the end and uh, uh, touching the Boston Marathon trophy. It, it was just surreal. And then at the end of the uh, ceremony, I had, a, I had some group of people come up to me. I'm like, are you Matt? I'm like, yeah. Um, and uh, we're with Massachusetts Association of the Blind. Um, would you willing to come out and run a Vision 5K with us in another month? I'm like, who are you guys again? So that was my introduction to meeting them, which is a group up in um, Boston that provides services for blind and visually impaired individuals. And they run uh, the team with the vision up there in Boston, which is a great organization um, with the Boston Marathon they run. So the next year I ran with them uh, for the Boston Marathon. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you'd finished, you finished uh, both years in 306 and change, which I thought was uh, very consistent. You're 
<laughs> nothing super consistent between those two years in Boston. And it was funny, I was looking at your times and my time in 20, your time in 2010 was 30620, mine was 30634. So I don't know if we were near each other, but you know, because net and gun time were different, but um, somewhere we, we, we may have been close at some point in, in 2010 in that race. So that was, I thought that was kind of a funny, funny coincidence. That's pretty neat. Yeah. So, so we're, we were talking about guides too. And I, what I thought was a really neat story, and I'm sure is probably something that sticks out in your head as memorable is that um, for your, I think it was 2016 CIM where um, Scott Durek was your, was your guide. Yes. I had a unique experience. So I've gone out five times to California and in 2016, uh, Usabo was able to get Scott Jerk to come out and guide, and um, and uh, we got teamed up to to run together. Um, he he's very passionate about running, of course. And uh, if most people have heard from the Born the Run, and to be honest, I was shocked and honored. Um, so I went out for a shakeout run with him the next first day, and he was more honored to run with me than. Uh, I was thinking, you know, the celebrity runner, and it was just very neat, humbling experience um, hearing talking to him, uh, hearing about his kids, and um, let's see, we were just talking like we were just old friends, and uh, yeah, I found out his mom actually had MS, so he likes to go out there, and um, this was his first year, but supporting blind individuals, uh, his mom actually lost his, her sight to, to MS. So um, being able to support the running community and the blind. And so he ran the first 13 miles in 16 with me. And oh, before I get there, so there's a, um, you know, pasta dinner and uh, for all the blind runners, guides, sponsors the night before, I'm actually holding Scott Jerk's baby. And he looks at his phone and goes, you know, Jen Sheldon, you've run for the run. I'm like, yeah, hasn't everybody? She's half an hour away skiing. I'm going to text her. See if she want to run with us tomorrow. So she set up the start and she ran the first eight miles with us. Oh, wow. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, this is going to be the born the run uh, race. So, <laughs> so the uh, two of us, basically, she quit or got used the guide. And about mile eight, Jen said she had a bail. She's just like, I I'm not up for this pace here or I'm, I'm no way I'm going to finish. And Scott, somewhere about a mile later, she goes, I won't be surprised if we see her again, knowing her. I'm like, well, what? which she was a hoot the entire race. It was those first eight miles were just hilarious. <laughs> I forgot I was actually running. <laughs> that's, but, that's, that's, some, that's notable only because we'll get to this later, but your pace was so fast and to be able to be joking around um, and running with these, uh, you know, these notable runners and, and being able to hold a conversation is, is remarkable, but um, go ahead. But go, I, go I, got, I, got, I got to the finish and I was about ready. Um, we switched off guides uh, 13 got to the finish and got tackled by Jen at the end. She somehow got to the finish. She hitchhiked wow. to the finish. That's, that is a great story. And that was your year you went under three, is that correct? Yeah, that was my first time breaking three. Wow. But just to tell how passionate Scott was about the blind running community. So he, at 13, he hand, we handed off the guides and there was a high school kid. So he ran a mile with him just to, so he could say he ran with Scott Jerk, went back. I find out after the race was over, he went back running 13, the 14 with every blind runner he could find and ran and encouraged them. I think, I don't know how many he went back and found, but just kept doing that loop over and over and over until it was time to get back. But um, yeah, incredible. probably get, I'm hurting guessing probably about 20 blind runners because they usually get about 50 some blind runners out there of all ages and abilities. That, that is incredible. And, and um, talk to us a little bit about that marathon for you. You know, that was, that's a big goal for any marathoner, but you know, you had been closed for many years and then to go under three, what, what do you think, you know, made the difference that year? Was it your training? Was it the course? Was it a good guide, a good pacing plan? What, what do you think helped you get under three? Uh, a little of everything. I think for the last couple of years, I was training for the Paralympics um, in the 5k. So my speed was for the last I tried for the Rio Paralympics in 16. So my 5K speed was pretty good, but I didn't have my distance up because I was, you know, focusing on the 5K for the last two years and then switched over to, you know, marathon training and bringing that mileage up. So I, I hit finally 22 and still had a lot of leg speed left. And uh, I, I, I won't lie, having making those first 
10 miles really easy and just having fun uh, took a load off the shoulders um, and weren't worrying about hitting paces or just kind of having fun there. And then the hard work came at the end. And uh, I have to say that I can't remember the name of the high school kid, but he worked hard because my vision goes at the end. And uh, long story short, I've got a few stories, but I ran it at 2018. I went out there and I ran into the high school kid's father at the banquet and he goes i just gotta say thank you to you i'm like for what he's like one of my proudest moments was seeing my son running with you to accomplish your goals that was one of the uh. proudest things i've ever seen him having him guide you to break three hours i'm like i, I don't even know what to say i'm like he was helping me <laughs> so it just shows how the guide and blind running comes a team sport and it comes a community too out there that's so beautiful. Um, wow, that's really amazing. So uh, you've achieved so much already, but talk to us and tell us about how your running's been in 2020 and 2021 and, and what your goals are uh, coming up this year now that races are returning. Okay, um, well, let's see. Uh, I'm going out back to California as long as the world comes back to somewhat normal. Um, this. And um, just started prepping up for a California National, uh, I think two or three weeks into actual focus training. Um, I'll probably run a couple 5Ks or something like that, uh, depending on. Um, but the main focus is just getting in shape to go out to California, which is usually the first week in December. I usually take one race at a time, being a father, that is my priority, not running. And so usually uh, we'll try to fit a 5K in here, probably some thanksgiving or before that uh to see where i'm at but uh yeah more just prepped there and after cim we'll see what the next adventure comes to. so that's usually how i take it one marathon at a time which sounds like a cliche but no it is and you also have to balance your training just like many of us with work and kids and and you know family obligations so um you know one one race at a time sounds like sounds like a good plan have you ever had to deal with injuries uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had, uh, luckily, knock on wood, I've been pretty injury prone, but um, ah, before a few of the CIMs in the early days, I've had some IT band issues or uh, some calf stuff, but nothing too major. I did actually hurt myself bumping into something once pretty bad. It took me several months to recover. Um, when I but knock on wood, I haven't had too many major injuries that have knocked me out. But uh, I guess I followed some of the rules of thumb after 400 miles, always changing shoes, always taking a break after marathons, not trying to run myself totally into the ground, but just enough. But so knock on wood, and nothing too much. But have you, do you feel like you've had to change your training as you've gotten older? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one, life doesn't allow for it anymore. Um, being dad is the priority. So I'll go out during lunch and run or in the evenings um, when basically try to figure out working and schedules. It isn't, you know, so we have pre-parenthood. It would be like, okay, I got all Saturday morning, the train, go run or do. Now adapts. And I, being 41, uh, the leg turnover just isn't what it was when I was 25 and I'll be realistic, but as long as I'm out there having fun on uh, trying to get the mileage in there and uh, trying to see what the, yeah, I've definitely had to adapt a little bit. I'm still kind of using the same training program I used in 16, but just probably not as high mileage. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a kind of our, our experiences as well. Um, so just, you know, to close out our interview, um, what, what advice would you give to runners who, who are, may experience a setback or kind of a change in their, in their trajectory? We work with a lot of runners who, you know, maybe have an injury and they're coming back or something just changes in their life that really requires them to, um, you know, rethink their goals and rethink their approach. What, what, what advice would you give to them? It might sound cliche, but don't try to reinvent the wheel. Uh, like say if you get set back or uh, don't hit your goal, don't try to totally blow up 
uh, training plan or try to recreate what somebody else is doing. I've never found that the work. If they have something that's worked in the past, try it again or, or just slightly modify what you've done in the past. But don't try the, try the copy, you know, oh, so-and-so did this plan. We should try this now. If it's worked in the past, just kind of stick to, to it. And so far, that's kept me healthy running. And uh, basically, just don't try to recreate the wheel. Yeah, well, it seems to have worked for you throughout, you know, many years now, over 20 years of a successful running career. And, um, you know, we just uh, love that you are, you know, accomplishing these huge goals and really um, you know, impressive accomplishments, um, uh, you know, and, and you keep working at them. So that is a great example, we think, for all runners. And um, we've so appreciated get, getting to talk to you and we're looking forward to following, um, you know, your, your future accomplishments and seeing how you do at CIM. Hopefully we get you get out there and, and the races run and we get back to racing. But um, it's been such a joy to talk to you and we hope we get to see you out on the roads one day soon. Like once we're all back, you know, running out, running again and racing in this area would be great to get to run with you. Yeah. I hope to see you too. No pun intended. <laughs> great, <Matt. laughs> Thanks again, Matt. And we'll make sure to put in our show notes, how to, how people can um, learn more about United in stride and um, you know, some of the other resources that you mentioned and hopefully um, be able to get involved in this wonderful community. That'd be great. Yeah. The more people that can get involved with guide running or supporting USABA or, uh, or MAB with the Boston Marathon, I think it's the better. Um, it, it, I've had so many guides come back to me and tell me that they had so much more fun just being a guide and got so much out of it. Um, so if you're looking to the, have some time and willing to get involved, uh, those are some good resources. And I, no, uh, I'm not too involved, but there's an Achilles chapter in DC that's always looking for guides, which is a group that uh, supports blind individuals in, uh, with, uh, and they have regular runs in DC. That's great. We'll definitely put a link in the show notes to that. That'd be great. Thank you. Well, thanks again for joining us, Matt, and um, take care. Good luck with your training. Yeah, pleasure. Nice meeting you both. Nice meeting you. Thanks again, Matt. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.